Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is Stephanie Price, Vice President of Audio and TV at the New York Times. The Times is, of course, a world-renowned 169-year-old media and journalism enterprise with a purpose to seek the truth and help people better understand their world. It's also a red-hot brand with record subscriptions, record audiences, and a boatload of new initiatives, many in the audio and TV space. My guest Stephanie is a graduate of Middlebury College with a degree in philosophy. She has been at the New York Times for six and a half years and was promoted to VP about 10 months ago. This recording was done before a live virtual audience of a few hundred executives at the Kellogg Northwestern University 10th Annual Marketing Leadership Summit. We talk about how the New York Times has become an innovation engine with their hit podcast and FX weekly show. We talk about why audio is surging and what this means for business leaders. This is my lively conversation with Stephanie Price. Hey, everyone. I want to um, thank Jeff for that introduction and, and, uh, and welcome Stephanie to our meeting. And Stephanie, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Hello. Hi, Stephanie. Hi. From the New York Times. Thank you. Where, where are you joining us from today? I am joining from Brooklyn. Um, from my my home office, also known as my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you working remotely full time now? Not in the office. Yes, and have been since the first week of March. Yeah, yeah. As most of us, which are fortunate to do that. Stephanie, um, thank you again for being with us. We're going to chat for about twenty twenty five minutes. Uh, you are the VP of Audio and TV for the New York Times, and you've had six and a half years of the Times, three promotions. And I've heard you say, I'm quoting you, pretty much everything I work on is something the company is trying to figure out. That sounds pretty fun, but also a little bit terrifying. So how does that play out in how you work, your daily work? I would say that's a pretty accurate assessment, fun and terrifying. Um, you know, I um, I started at the Times um, in uh, a role that, really was a big shock and a big transition for me. I had come from a startup where I was chief of staff to the co-founders and was sort of accustomed to sitting atop all the work that happened at a company and helping to make decisions and drive work um, at the highest level. And I, when I arrived, you know, I found myself kind of 
really embedded in a very kind of specific aspect of the work that goes on at the Times, which was um, in the newsroom working on visual journalism. And my job there was um, sort of ambiguous at first, but ended up being helping the two leaders of that organization at the time um, figure out how they were going to evolve their team and the structure of their team to make more visual journalism and make visual journalism a bigger part of the experience that people had when they opened the New York Times app every day. And, um, you know, in that first year, what I really started to believe was that the, the, the company, that that part of the company was not really organized properly, that there needed to be pretty significant changes um, that went on in order to achieve um, the results that we wanted. And um, lo and behold, a few months later, um, on a Thursday morning, I think, uh, the two heads of that part of the division were um, step, stepped aside. Um, they left. And that was kind of the first time that I was asked to work on a project where the question was sort of like, what should we do here? You know, in that, in this case, it was, what should we do with all of these visual journalists at the times we, you know, know that they're terrifically talented, but we're not really getting the impact out of them that we think that we can. And, you know, that was an archetype of the work I've gone on to do um, a lot in the years since then, which is try to understand both from a journalistic perspective, but also from a business perspective, um, when things aren't working, really diagnosing what's going on and then trying to help, um, you know, leaders and, and op operators uh, figure out how to set the, how to set the course. Um, and, uh, you know, now kind of fast forwarding to the future, um, I'm working on kind of two things that they're not problems. They're really opportunities for the company. And I think they're opportunities that are emblematic of kind of the modern New York times, um, in television and in audio, our opportunity is to really think about what is the New York times essentially when you strip away kind of all the traditions and all the things that we do out of routine, like what is at the core of, of the New York times and how can we reimagine that and bring it to life in media that are a better fit often for the lives of modern people in modern times. Um, so I would say the thing that kind of unites all of that work is the ability to um, really kind of get into the weeds and figure out what's going on and be an executor, but also consistently take a step back and reassess like, is this, is this right? Are we on the right path? Should we do something slightly differently? And that's the kind of unique nature of, of the work that I've done. Yeah. Well, for our participants, you know, a big reason we've had you on here is your uh, wonderful personality, which you're just showing, but also to, to got, kind of learn a little bit more about audio and why that's popping and actually learn a bit more about the New York Times brand. And I'm just going to throw out some stats so everyone gets on the same page. You know, headline is you're crushing it. You know, six and a half million subscriptions, highest ever. Most popular news podcast, The Daily, with 4 million daily downloads. Nine Emmys for your innovation in TV, with some actually pretty unexpected partnerships for the New York Times. Sway just released. So you're more relevant in more parts of people's days than ever. You know, you're growing your business, engaging more people, developing new capabilities. Uh, every brand would love to do what you're doing, which ex is expanding your reach, we call them line extensions sometimes, but you're, you've told me before, you're more relevant for people in more parts of their day than ever before. Mm -hmm. So what could the brand leaders on this podcast learn from your playbook to do that? You know, how did you, what principles underlie this new New York Times, 
which is more relevant to more people at more times of the day. What could we learn from how you've extended this brand uh, with deeper engagement um, and, and broader reach? So I'd say something that's been really transformational over the period of the time that I've worked at, at the Times has been anchoring around the insight that we are a subscription-first company. It doesn't mean that we don't do things that are important that aren't sort of directly about subscription, but everything that we do, we, you know, we feel ladders back to our role as a service worth paying for, a relationship directly with people. And, you know, you mentioned our, you know, touch points in a day. Foundational to that subscription business is the notion that our strategy broadly is to get into habits with people, is to have people have, you know, a daily habit, ideally multiple daily habits with the times in some form. And so when we think about, you know, opportunities to do new things, opportunities to grow, opportunities to expand beyond kind of text journalism, we think about it all through that lens. What are the, what are the sort of, in your average day, what are the big pockets of time that we're not going after and how could we go after them? And, you know, you exclude like sleeping and, you know, and a few things that are obviously not, not up for grabs. And you look at the big chunks of the day and that I would say are the, is the lens through which, um, you know, the company has thought about both TV and audio. Um, and, you know, think at big companies like the Times, new things come about in one of two ways. You know, either it's the sort of classic strategy project, you know, route where there's, you know, a person or a group of people who are interested in something and somebody gets assigned to it and they look into it and then out of that emerges some kind of proposal or something or another. And then the other way is like nobody was paying any attention at all. And then something just happens that causes everybody to take notice and say, sort of, hold on, what's happening here? We should pay attention to this. And I think TV and audio are, are each an example of one of those things and quite different. In the case of television, we were really thinking about the living room and the living room is a place where um, people spend hours a day, um, every day and have for decades. Although of course, what they do in the living room and exactly what kind of service they use has changed a lot, you know, from cable to, um, over the top, um, in particular, but people are still spending a lot of time there. And how could the times go after that? How could the times kind of make a, make a play for the living room? And that, that was the origin. The first question that, that sort of drove all the work we've done in TV, um, we initially developed um, a format for uh, a weekly news program. Um, and when we went out to um, look for a distribution partner for that, we unexpectedly found ourselves really wanting to um, partner with FX, which is a cable network that's known primarily for kind of scripted entertainment, certainly not known for news. But what really appealed to us about FX is that connecting back to our subscription strategy there are 90 million homes and they have a really different demographic than the New York Times. They reach a different audience. They reach people who, you know, uh, either may not think the Times is for them or more likely just aren't in a routine with us. And that was appealing to us that we could get ourselves in front of those people in a way that might cause them to think that the Times could be for them. So I'd say that's kind of the the way that television as, a, as an ambition of ours came about. And audio, quite differently, um, and this was long before I actually was involved in audio, so I can take no credit for this. Um, you know, coming out of the 2016 election, um, there had been uh, a young woman who was hired to work on audio from traditional radio background. And she and a small team of people had an idea to really launch something that would help people understand the moment of 
um, you know, the presidential transition and ultimately the inauguration, which is just about when the, when the podcast launched. And um, it was not, you know, something that had been a big strategy project or a kind of ambition from on high. It was really just a group of entrepreneurs who I think did maybe the best job the Times has ever done in that thing of stripping the Times down to its very basic elements. You know, it's not newspaper stories that is what, you know, our essence, it's stories and journalism. And they imagined what that could look like in, um, you know, audio form, in a listening form. And so all the things that were sort of the, the ways that people would have thought about doing audio for the New York Times, read the headlines out loud, have reporters on a show and have them be, you know, interviewed about their story were, were sort of the opposite of, of what this group ended up doing. And they ended up trying to bring that storytelling sensibility to the news. Um, and so I think that, you know, in terms of what I would say to your question about what can leaders learn from these two, you know, grand experiments that the Times has, has, has done and is doing, it's really a think about thinking about these media and what would be the most authentic version of, you know, whatever your brand is um, in, in this new way of delivering it. Yeah. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. We've talked a lot today with other speakers and participants about you know, storytelling. We've talked about humanity, people-centered leadership. This whole idea of empathy, humanity has been a very, very strong theme, which is no surprise today. What is it about the New York Times culture these days that enabled this creativity, this entrepreneurship, this innovation, this reframing of the brand that may not have been there years ago? So what, what could we learn about the cultural change? Good question. Um, you know, I think a lot of it has been leadership. Um, I've, I've, for the sort of period of time that I've been at the Times, there's been, a, 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 there were two new leaders at the company when I began, a new head of our newsroom and a new CEO. Um, but almost every other senior leader has has turned over in that time. There's been an enormous amount of organizational change at the top um, during the time that I've been there. And I think that, you know, those two leaders, um, our former CEO, Mark Thompson, and the head of our newsroom, Dean Baquet, really led the charge in asking the hard questions about what here that we do is habit and just it's sort of mechanical habit and what is really kind of essential and do we need to modernize? And I think that, you know, in terms of changing the culture and driving a change in culture, to me, that's where it all began. Um, I think another, another, you know, important, important aspect of that has been creating new space inside the company where people can try things that, that may not work out. Um, especially in a place where kind of excellence and perfection and accuracy are at the root 
of everything we do. And it's sort of the cultural, um, the strongest aspect of our culture, you know, even as business people who are not journalists, being an excellent writer, an excellent communicator, it's, it's so a part of what, what we do. So it's been hard to create spaces where people can just feel free to try something that they very much know may not work. And I think that that carving out that organizational space in the company um, has been really essential as well. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about audio and I have a trivia question for you to start. When was the first podcast released? What year? Oh, I know. I mean, many, many years, decades ago. Um, and I don't, I, I should know this, but I don't have it on the top of my head. It's all right. It's a, it's I really should. It was, a, it was an awful question. Actually, 1994. Isn't that crazy? And, but obviously it has really taken off in the last, I mean, this marketing leadership summit began 10 years ago or at the 10 year anniversary. We weren't talking about podcasting 10 years ago. We weren't talking about audio 10, 10 years ago. And so I'd like you to tell us a little bit about what we can learn. Why has it taken off? And let's talk about that first. And then I want you to get your advice on the brands that are on this call, this, in this meeting who represent B2B brands, B2C brands. I want, I want us to get into sort of, What's your advice to them about how to, how to use this, how to leverage it authentically on their brands? But let's first start about why. Why has this exploded? I mean, I think it really does go back pretty far, you know, in terms of the origins of laying the groundwork for what's happened over the last couple of years. And I would point for first to really the, the, the data machine we, already, we all carry around in our pockets now, you know, the smartphone. Um, but but especially to the widespread widespread kind of adoption of headphone usage, which really was driven by music, not not radio, not podcasting, but you know we all carry around and have become accustomed to carrying around this hardware that makes it such that in any moment where we are multitasking, and I think that's kind of one of the things about audio that's that's you know when you really pay attention to this. It, it shows you how different it is from all other forms of media. Audio is a medium that is relevant in moments when you are doing something else. It's very unlike text, very unlike television, where, you know, it's you are making a choice to sort of engage with that media form. This is kind of the opposite. And so it's not competitive to those media. It is it is competitive in moments when you can't read because you're driving or you're commuting or when you, when you don't want to watch TV because you're doing the dishes. Um, and I think that, you know, as people have um, begun to look for more things to fill up those moments, which used to be maybe moments where they didn't have, you know, any any media consumption, that podcasting has been really um, kind of ready for a rise. You know, I, I am biased in, in terms of answering this question as well from my own experience, but also working at the Times. I happen to think another huge development, it, it you know, perhaps one of the most important developments in the last, uh, you know, decade maybe for the, for the, for the rise of podcasting was the first season of Serial, which was the first time that a podcast, I think that people had the experience of, of having someone tell them about a podcast and that they should listen to it and sort of maybe not even knowing what a podcast was. And that was the way in which, you know, it became something that they understood. And I think it was the first podcast that really went kind of mainstream. It wasn't just podcast people that were listening to Serial. It created podcast people. And I think that that has laid the foundation for a lot of, a lot of what has come, come before it, come yeah. since, rather. So from your vantage, you know as much about audio as almost anyone in the world. Uh, what's your counsel to the brands here 
you know, obviously they can buy media in this, in this realm, but how do you really, who, who do you think is using it well, audio out there? And what's your advice to them if you're Cisco or SAP or IBM or PNG or Intuit or any of the brands that are here uh, listening and trying to figure out how they are more relevant in people's lives? Sure. I mean, I think I would think about it in two ways. The first is, you know, I've said this a couple of different ways, but what is it about um, a brand that is relevant in those multitasking moments when you think about um, when someone is doing the dishes or when they're walking their dog or exercising or driving the car? Is there some message? Is there some um, story? And I I do think it's a storytelling medium, not just an information exchange medium. Um, that is especially relevant in those moments when people are doing something else. And, you know, for the Times, as a brand, what we really um, discovered was that, you know, the people behind journalism were the thing that was special about audio. You never got that when you read the New York Times. You never got to know, you know, Adam Liptak, Supreme Court reporter, or uh, Maggie Haberman, or, you know, others who now are like personalities. They're people that we've allowed our audience to get to know. And of course, Michael Barbaro, the host of The Daily, um, as well as host of other programming that we make. So I think that was one of the big insights for us was that audio was an opportunity to allow our users to encounter the people behind our journalism. Um, and then the second thing I would say, and this is something we love about audio, is you know the ecosystem of advertising inside of podcasts is really distinct from other forms of, of advertising, at least for now, it's extremely high quality. You know, it's a very high quality experience for a listener. You know, in, in we hear, we sometimes even hear people like when the ad runs, cause it's a little bit of a mental break. Um, it's an opportunity to kind of like sort of reset. Um, and you know, the, the, the type of advertising that's done by brands tends to be, you know, really high quality relative to other forms of media. It's in the voice of the host or it's in the voice of, um, you know, a voice actor. But I think that we've seen really, um, you know, success from brands that have um, stuck to that high quality message in audio. And, and I think I would say that's something we hope will will stick around. We have a note from Laura at, uh, at Intuit, who's their CMO. She said that they, they've aired on the New York Times Daily and it performs extremely well. So there's a testimonial. Oh, so glad to hear that. Laura, yeah, thanks for sharing that. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. We have another question I just wanted to pop to and then come back uh, sure. for, for a few minutes to close it. Uh, someone, uh, Pablo, was, was asking, you know, how have you, how have you created this culture of experimentation? At the Is it a separate space? Is it a separate organization? I mean, what beyond the leadership has happened to create the experimental culture? So I think it's really two things. You know, the first is it's literally a division of the company now. You know, it is not inside that, you know, we have a division of the company that is in charge of, you know, supercharging our subscription growth quarter over quarter. And that's a huge central part of our company that, you know, includes marketers and engineers and 
product leaders and all kinds of different people. There's also a division now that is in charge of and tasked with thinking a bit longer term, thinking about, you know, what's the opportunity a year from now, two years from now, what kinds of products could we build for those moments and kind of working backwards from that. And they're, you know, it's managed differently. It's, we don't, you know, we don't have like uh, the same kinds of, um, you know, week to week, month to month, quarter to quarter targets um, when we're really in that ideation stage of something. Um, so I think that's a huge part of it is, is like organizationally making the space for it and not imagining that, I think it's unrealistic to imagine that people can do both. Um, I think you really need to kind of create that separate space. Um, and then I think kind of relatedly, it's been the company has really gotten behind entrepreneurs, people who have, um, you know, whether it's, you know, the person who built our branded content business from scratch, which was his idea when he came here seven years ago, Seb Tomich, or um, the team that came up with the idea for the cooking app. Um, you know, that we have this kind of culture now of, um, or, um, the, uh, person who, who imagined and created the team and launched and now runs, um, the daily, um, we've, we've gotten a few, you know, examples of those people under our belts. And now that there's a much, I think, more supportive culture of kind of identifying those people and supporting them. Um, and I think that's important too. Yeah. Yeah. So give us some advice. What are some of your most favorite podcasts or listening experiences? Um, well, I have to recommend every New York Times podcast that we make, which, you know, it's getting hard to keep up with. I, I, I really agree do, with that. I really do listen to everything that we make still. Uh, sometimes I get a little behind and like on Friday when I'm getting in the car, you know, to go somewhere, I have like seven hours of listening to you, but I, I do keep on, on top of it. You know, something I always like to mention that I think is a little bit less well-known that we, that we do is um, we bought a company called Autumn earlier this year. It's a subscription product that allows you to access read aloud version of magazine, read aloud versions of magazine stories. So it's sort of like the audio book of long form magazine journalism and you know, it's a little bit, it can be for people a slightly disorienting initial experience when they, when they first read this thing, because, or, or listen to this thing, because it's just like, what is this? It's not a podcast, but as you become used to it, it sort of feels like the superpower to me now where, um, you know, those stacks of New Yorkers that used to sit next, you know, next to my bed and I would like look at them for a while and then one day get frustrated and throw them all out. Now I can plow through them while I'm doing other things. Um, and so for me, that's been a really, um, a new part of my audio diet in the last, you know, year that I've, I've really come to find essential. Um, and then I'm always interested in, you know, and there have been a number this year, the kind of zeitgeist of these limited run series that, that, that pop up. Um, there was an amazing one from the Atlantic earlier this year, floodlines that I, that I really loved. Um, we've done a couple this year. Um, Serial just put one out called, nice white parents. Um, and so I really love the opportunity to take a break from a show that comes out every week or every day and just kind of have a totally different, you know, maybe binge or, or experience. It's kind of like how, you know, in TV, you're always, you're always watching something. I like to have something that, you know, you can, you can kind of keep going for the background. So those, those are some of my, some of my favorites. The last question, our theme today is turning headwinds into tailwinds. And you've had some nice thoughts in here about thinking about innovation and audio and lessons from the New York Times. When you think about, this is the last question, your professional life and your personal life, what headwinds are you trying to turn into tailwinds going into 2021 and beyond? 
So for me, all of the things that come to mind have to do with COVID. And I, and I really have, you know, for me, there have been some real silver linings to COVID um, that I think are worth thinking about how we carry them forward into our hopefully, you know, normal lives when that returns, you know, and on the work front, the transformation of my team of the people that, you know, I work with knowing more about their lives because their kids are running, you know, and of coming into kind of more contact with like the full person who you work with. That's always been something that I kind of care a lot about, but I think it's become a bigger part of our culture. Um, it's, it's impossible that it hasn't been. And I think that's something that, you know, I hope we can carry with us um, forward. Another has to do with the ability, the real ability to, do high caliber, high caliber work in a fully distributed team. I mean, I just don't think we really understood how possible that was until we all had to do it. And I think it will totally change the way we think about hiring and building teams um, and doing work. Um, And so, and I think that's for the better. Um, And then, you know, personally, I think, um, you know, it's been a really good opportunity to form some new habits. You know, when some of the old habits are gone, the habit of, waking up in the morning and cramming through the, you know, a run to get in the shower and go to the subway, like all those habits being gone, it creates this new space in life. Like, what do you fill that with? And for me, it's been important to not just allow that to get filled up with work because <laughs> it's so easy to let that, let that creep forward and later into your day, but to think about kind of new habits um, that can be formed from that same time. For me, it's been like listening to a lot of, um, audio while I walk and run around my, around my neighborhood. Um, and, you know, doing other things that like, I used to think I was too busy to do, but now you have this like additional time. And so I hope that those will all be things that we can all kind of collectively carry forward as we hopefully return to our more normal lives. Yeah. Stephanie, this has been a wonderful chat. Uh, thank you for joining us from Brooklyn thank you so much. and, uh, and thank you for everything you're doing. Uh, you have an important role in the world, especially these days. And to your whole team, keep up the great work on many fronts, on, on all occasions, in all rooms of my house and beyond. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Stephanie, take care. Take care. The overall theme of the Kellogg Northwestern Marketing Summit this year was, no surprise, the 2020 reset turning headwinds into tailwinds. The highlight for me in this discussion with Stephanie was how the New York Times has shifted and pivoted to become much more relevant to more people in more times during the day and night than it ever has before. That's a great lesson for every marketer. And if you want to learn more about the summit at Kellogg Northwestern, visit my LinkedIn page for my five big takeaways from this year's summit. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.